Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome to a sort of instant reaction of the Brooklyn Nets victory over the Detroit Pistons here on the Evan Roberts Podcast. I say sort of instant. I'll take you behind the scenes of the Roberts household. Usually, we put our son to sleep. My wife will join me, watch some sports for like an hour, and then she'll say, I'm done. I'm going to bed. Do you mind? They'll say, of course not. Go to bed. And I'll have that camera where you watch the baby. And if Jet wakes up, I'll take care of him at night. Uh, My wife's already sleeping. If I'm sleeping, you know, maybe we'll switch off. Nets play this ridiculous freaking game that has given me emotions, good and bad, all over the place. I'm confused, basically, after this game, which I'll express to you coming up. Game ends. I got the little monitor with me. I sit down in the makeshift Evan Roberts studio, and as it happens, the little boy woke up. Jet's like, all right, hey, the Nets won. Spencer Dinwiddie's awesome. Cool. Time to get up. So I spent, I'd say, about five minutes rocking him and then eventually just putting him in our bed. So it's not really an instant reaction. I'd say it's more a I've had a chance about five minutes to digest it reaction of the Nets' victory over the Detroit Pistons. Um, Can I give you my thoughts throughout this game? And then obviously... I'll give you the positive thoughts because they won. My thoughts throughout this game is the anger continued to build towards this head coach because in a lot of ways, every time this team struggles, I think of Sean Marks and I think of his Australian, New Zealand accent, whatever one it is, and I think of him talking about Kinney. Yeah, everybody loves playing for Kinney. Kenny, 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 Kenny. And I think of Frank Isola, who I have great respect for, talking about, well, you know, as a Net fan, you've got a hell of a coach. Do I know I have a hell of a coach? Do I know that? Because what I've seen is a head coach whose rotations at times make absolutely no sense. I saw a coach that let Jared Allen play with three fouls dangerously. I saw him continue to love Jared Dudley on a level that I would think Kenny Atkinson's wife would start to get nervous. And I see a team whose effort throughout this game was inconsistent. I see a team who could not close first quarter, could not close second quarter, and sometimes makes no adjustments at all. And sometimes like the Nick game, God, you should be happy I didn't do an instant reaction to that, coming home from Madison Square Garden. I see a team whose offense just ends up becoming, let's settle and chuck up threes. So as the Nets are having this really frustrating game against the Pistons, a team coming off a back-to-back, by the way, 
I started kind of building up my distrust, my worry about this head coach. And I can't tell you that it's completely gone because they won this game. Because I think about, hey, they're up 27-12. to 12. They're off to a great start. But I think about the close to the first quarter, a 10-1 to run. I think about the close to the first half, a 12-4 to run. I think about how sometimes the dudes he puts on the floor, like let's go small for way too long a period of time against a Piston team that, I don't know if you realize it, have bigs like Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin. And by the way, Blake Griffin, what a hell of a performance by him. I'll get to that in a second. I also, one thing that, maybe I should save this for later, Ed Davis being ignored late in this game, when you want a guy on the floor who could, I don't know, give you a chance to box out Andre Drummond and grab a big rebound, and he was ignored. We didn't see a lot of Ed Davis. Now, I know he committed the five fouls, but you need six, Kenny, before you're out of the game. I thought on the final possession, I think it was of regulation. I'll just skip right to that. I'll work my way back. What scared me was how, hey, if the Pistons put a shot up with about three seconds to go, and they took the shot early, Reggie, or actually they took the shot late. I think Reggie Jackson's miss was with maybe two or three seconds to go. They didn't have a lot of time. That if Andre Drummond is out there, you got to worry about a tip-in. You've got to worry about an offensive rebound. Wouldn't it behoove him a little bit to have Ed Davis out there? But whatever. The point is the questions I have about this head coach. And then also, I engaged, and it's not even a debate because there are a lot of good net fans on Twitter. In fact, most of the net fans on Twitter, I say, are good fans because there aren't many of them. And I engaged in the whole, there are guys hoping to tank, you know, hoping that the Nets basically lose every game, they could keep up with the Knicks, and they can win the lottery. And while that logic may look smart come April, I don't think that way. Like, I'm still sweating from this game because I care about wins and losses. I dream going into seasons. I dream about, hey, if everything breaks right, this could happen. And the odds are they're not. I don't really think the Nets are going to be in the playoffs. I don't think they're going to win 40 games. But when the games are going on, especially this early in the season, I'm sorry, I just can't buy into the whole tanking thing. But let me get to this game. First of all, right out of the gate, I was annoyed because Karis LeVert, who had maybe his worst game as a pro at Madison Square Garden against the Knicks, The first shot he took, I think it was the first shot of the game, was so way off. I had fear that his slope would continue, which was not really the case. I did like the fact that Andre Drummond took a jumper to start the game. I thought, hey, maybe this is a good omen. But the Nets came out and they played well early. I mean, they were up 20-9 to midway through the first quarter of this game, and the Pistons looked like a team coming off a back-to-back. They looked like a team that had played the previous night against the Boston Celtics. And Sarah, during the broadcast, made a comment. And I'm not blaming her because it's a true comment, even though when she said it, everything changed. She said it 27-12. I think it was 27-12. She says, you're playing a team on a back-to-back. You jump on them early, and I'm paraphrasing. You could almost take away their will to play. You know, they played last night. They're tired. You're up early. They could check out immediately. And that's not what happened at all. I mean, the Pistons came out and they played a tough game tonight. I'm sure they're annoyed they blew this game, and I'm sure they're annoyed they lost this game. And I'm sure the Piston fan looks at the Nets, rightfully so, as an inferior opponent, so you got to go beat them. 
But the Pistons gave quite an effort tonight because at 27-12, that was possible. And they came back. And they came back because Andre Drummond... And I got I got a lot of respect for Andre Drummond because not only his game, not only the way he just destroys the nets on the glass, not only because he's one of the last old-school guys, he's like a dinosaur out there, but the improvement he's made at the line has been noticeable not just last year, but certainly this year, even more so. This is a guy who was a 45% horror show from the free-throw line, and he's a different guy. But what hurt this team was both Ed Davis and Jared Allen got into foul trouble early, which certainly doesn't help. And I thought there was this one play in the first half. Sometimes it's tough to find plays in a long game in which there's so much offense that you can circle and say this was a damaging play, this was a momentum-changing game, a play. And I thought early on, as the Nets and the Pistons are close, because remember Detroit cut into that lead, and now it's a tight game, was right when D'Angelo Russell went three on five, up five. This must have been middle part of the second quarter. He goes three on five, doesn't realize there were two guys back that never can't, never were trailing him. He then tries to throw a pass behind him, not looking to what he thinks is one of the guys behind him. It leads to a turnover. It leads to a piston three. And that play kind of felt like all the momentum changed in this game. And then you've got... Jose Calderon hitting a three with one second to go on a complete defensive breakdown where Blake Griffin throws a baseball pass. I think it was to Drummond. And maybe Drummond committed a foul. I think that's what Kenny Atkinson wanted. But for Blake Griffin to throw the basketball three-quarters court, get it to Drummond, who then somehow gets it out to Calderon, who just annoys me. Looking at his face annoys me. was a complete breakdown in the first half. So instead of being down three going into the second half, they're down six. I, I, I may have said this before in one of these net podcasts, and I've definitely said it on the air. The closing of quarters and the closing of halves are so important. Good teams do it well. It's like pulling a Patriot at the end of the first half in a football game. You know, you score in the final 30 seconds, and then you get the ball back to start the second half. I think it matters. I think when you're sitting in the locker room down 10, it's a lot different than when you're down six. In this case, it was down six as compared to down three. And I thought maybe Kenny will make the adjustments. Maybe this team will come out because they weren't shooting the three at all well in this game, continuing the trend from the garden. And they kind of came out in the third quarter and played the same way. Allen commits his, I think he committed his fourth foul relatively early on. You know what it was? I think Ed Davis committed his fifth foul like a minute into the fourth quarter. I think that's when it happened. And the other thing I noticed early in the second half of this game was the complete awfulness of Alan Crabb. It's bad enough that Alan Crabb is missing threes. It's bad enough that he's not shooting the basketball well, considering that's why he's here. But how about that moment? I think he traveled on a three, then he turned the ball over and immediately gave a foul to Calderon when they were in the bonus. It was just this sequence of horribleness from Alan Crabb. And I know I shouldn't mention how much money he makes. Who cares how much money he makes? But he's been really, really bad. Let's admit that. And the other thing that you sensed in the third quarter and for the early part of the fourth quarter was every time you felt like the momentum was going to change, it didn't. 
you know, because they couldn't make a play. A great example of it was at the end of the third quarter, they had a chance at a tip. And again, at least get to the, not the locker room because it's the fourth quarter, but at least get to that end of third quarter down four. And they missed a chance at a tip in. And that's the way a lot of this game was going on. They were missing a lot of layups. They couldn't make a stop in the early part of the fourth quarter. And here was the other sequence moment where that kind of defined this game until everything changed. D'Angelo Russell Steele, Joe Harris took the ball to the basket, which the Nets started to do a lot of late in this game, which I liked. Even if it didn't work, I like it. I like that aggressiveness. Get to the basket, drive, and kick. That's a better way of getting an open three than basically just forcing them, which is what the Garden game felt like and what a lot of this first half felt like. So Russell actually makes a good defensive play. I mean, that never happens. Joe Harris takes it to the basket. He turns the ball over, leads to a piston fast break. They miss on their fast break, and then Drummond cleans it up. And at that point, they were down six with about six minutes to go. And it just felt like it was never going to turn. Jared Allen's going to the free throw line. He can't make a damn free throw. And those points are so damn important. I mean, you're in a five-point game. You think about all the, the points you left on the board because Jared Allen can't hit a free throw. And what I wonder about with Jared Allen, you know, big men in general are not good free throw shooters. You can find your exceptions. Brooke Lopez was a good free throw shooter. But can I take you into, and I don't want to compare these two guys, but here's what I thought about. Remember Jason Collins? Yeah, we know. He wasn't very good. All right. Jason Collins, when he first came into the league, was a good free throw shooter, right? Seven-foot guy, does the little things, and he'll make free throws. At some point in the middle of his career, I don't know what the hell happened. He became a 45% free throw shooter. Like, he became this awful, awful free throw shooter out of nowhere. And I'm not saying that's what's happening to Jared Allen. I don't want to go to that extreme because I thought Jared Allen actually did a lot of good things before he fouled out in the second half of this game. A lot of pick and roll with Allen, and that really helped their offense in the final four minutes. But to see a good free throw shooter struggle as much as he has struggled to start this season, it's in the back of my mind. I'm a little concerned. And you know what the other momentum changer was? And this involved Allen, and this is late. I mean, we're talking final four minutes of this game. That's why I'm still stunned they actually won this game. Uh, I think it was Drummond went for a steal on Allen. Allen sees the lane, drives, misses the dunk, and I think he missed the dunk because Blake Griffin got there. I, so I think he may have made contact with him. I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember. I mean, this is, you know, when, you, when you're talking about an overtime game and it's four minutes ago in the fourth quarter, you almost forget all about it, and it led to a Reggie Jackson three. And so here they are down six with four minutes to go, and this is when everything changed. Actually, this isn't when everything changed. Because remember, Blake Griffin hit a three that put him up seven. They were down seven with three minutes to go. This is when things changed. Sorry, I do a lot of this by memory. They're down seven with three minutes to go. And Dinwiddie takes over. And the reason the Brooklyn Nets won this game is Spencer Dinwiddie. So I guess I have to give Kenny Atkinson a compliment, and that compliment is he played Spencer Dinwiddie over D'Angelo Russell in the final minutes of this game. So you know what? There you go, Kenny. You did it. Spencer gets the 3-1, and one, and it was you know a little bit of a ticky-tack foul, but whatever. And then we saw a lot of Dinwiddie-Allen pick-and-rolls. 
There was a lob to Allen in which he got fouled. And, of course, you know, Allen's missing his free throws, but I think he got a point out of it. Dinwiddie hit an open three that got him within one, and they took the lead again on an Allen-Dinwiddie pick and roll, and they took the lead with about a minute and a half to go. It was an end one play, too. And then Blake Griffin, man. Blake Griffin did a lot of this. How many times did Blake Griffin hit a three in which somebody, mostly Jared Dudley, goes underneath the screen to leave him open? Didn't we see that at least three times in the fourth quarter in overtime? So Griffin hits this three, they're down one. And this is the, this is the moment of the game I thought I was going to be thinking about all night. <laughs> Thank God I'm not. Thank God I'm thinking about a win. And you know what I'm talking about because, again, I assume anybody listening to an Instant Reaction Net podcast actually watched the game. So we're already talking about a pool of about 600 people. The four shots... The four shots down one because of all the offensive rebounds. They got four opportunities. And remember, that new rule where the shot clock goes to 14 as opposed to 24, I think was huge here. But what was killer about the four misses was how they were settling. You know, the first one was a Dinwiddie kick out to Jared Dudley. Why Jared Dudley's taking these shots, and I know he ends up hitting a big three, but whatever. Spoiler alert, he hits a big three. Dinwiddie drives and kicks to Dudley. He misses a three. Joe Harris, who I love. I love Joe Harris. He does everything. Grabs a rebound. Levert has a miss. Allen has a rebound. Dinwiddie has a miss. Allen has a rebound. And then Dudley misses this wide-open corner three. Four misses, two of them from Jared Dudley. Just keep that in mind from Jared freaking Dudley. And at that point, I think the game is over. Don't you all think the game is over? You have four opportunities down one. You miss all four of them. And then to make matters worse, the brilliant head coach leaves Jared out on the floor in a foul opportunity, in a moment in which everybody knows you're fouling. There's 24 seconds to go. You're down by one. You're going to foul, right? You're going to extend the game. You're going to foul. Maybe you go for a quick two, not this team, but other teams may go for a quick two. I'll explain why they have no chance to go for a quick two in a second. And he leaves Allen on the floor. Remember, the Pistons had called a timeout after those four misses, or I think Blake Griffin was fouled, one or the other. Why is Allen out there? You know you're committing a foul, right? That's going to happen someone's committing a foul, he has five. If he commits a sixth, he's done. How's he out there? Can someone answer that for me? So guess who committed the foul on Reggie Jackson? I'll give you five guesses. Jared Allen. And now he's done. He's out of the game with 22 seconds to go. But but here's what else happened. And I'm not criticizing this because I get why Atkinson did this. Yeah, I can be fair. Reggie Jackson, it's his free throws. They're down three with 22 seconds to go. So just think about that. Down three, 22 seconds to go, and he uses his final timeout. Now, the good of that is you're drawing up a play because you have to extend the game. If you don't draw anything up and you basically tell everybody go play and you miss a shot the Pistons get it, the game is over. So I understand that even though you are wasting your timeout, which limits some of your possibilities, you're doing that. That's what you're doing. So he calls a timeout. He has 22 seconds to go. And the reason I know, we all know the Nets are taking a three, is not only the fact they have no timeouts left, though 20 seconds is plenty of time, but because this is what they do. 
Now, I don't have the most amazing memory, but at all the times the Nets have been down three with about, let's say, more than 12 seconds to go, more than 15 seconds to go. So between 15 and 25 seconds, down three. Does anybody ever remember them going for a quick two? It doesn't happen. Timeouts be damned. It doesn't happen. And so immediately on the inbound pass, Spencer Dinwiddie chucks up a three. (laughs) But this was Spencer Dinwiddie's night, and he drills it to tie the game. And the defense did a hell of a job forcing a Reggie Jackson miss, and we had ourselves overtime. Oh, my God. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie plays a lot of hero ball. That's one of the big critiques on Dinwiddie, and I think it's fair at times. And he takes a lot of bad, risky shots. Some of them go down, and, you know, when they go down, you celebrate them. But Dinwiddie has taken it to the basket a lot lately, and I love it. I do. I So much good comes out of taking the ball to the basket. Drives and kicks, drawing fouls getting a layup, getting your opponent's bigs in foul trouble, all of that. So we go to overtime. My boy Joe Harris hits a three on an RHJ driving kick. Um, Harris had another three that went in and out. We had the back-to-back three-second violations. How great was that? We had Karis Levert missing a free throw. We had Blake Griffin hitting a shot, which, again, I I thought was the end of the game. He hits a three off a screen where someone went underneath the screen. It was probably Jared Dudley, but I can't remember. But to Dudley's credit, he hits that corner three to tie the game. It was a wide-open shot, but he hit it. Blake then has this bank in that goes in when, again, I thought he was just going to chuck up another three. Blake Griffin has gotten so much better as a basketball player. He really has. Not only has he developed that outside shot, I just think he's gotten better. I think both Griffin and Drummond are two bigs who, if you've watched them throughout their career, a decent amount. I'm not watching every game, obviously, of theirs. You can see the improvement they've made. Blake is that guy. Like I feared him in the final two minutes of the fourth quarter and the final two minutes of overtime. I knew the ball was going to be in his hands, and I figured he was going to do something. And after that bank-in, after that bank-in, Dinwiddie gets called for an offensive foul. And I think he was one-on-one with Drummond or one-on-one with Griffin. He had a mismatch and pushed just a little bit. And so, again, on it down two with 25 seconds to go. I don't think they're winning this game. Blake missed a three, and that's when the Nets get their game winner. And Spencer Dinwiddie hits this step-back three because he got a mismatch with Andre Drummond drills the three, the crowd's going nuts, I'm falling out of my chair, it's a Dinwiddie kind of night, and I admit, as I'm waiting for this final possession, it was the first time I was oddly, I don't want to say confident, because I wasn't confident, I was still scared of Blake Griffin making a play, but I, it was the first time I was like, you know, I think they're going to win, you know, I think I'm going to do a happy podcast, that's what I said to myself, I think they're going to win. And they did. And I think it was Griffin versus Dinwiddie, one-on-one. And he made a stop. And the Nets escaped with this victory against the Detroit Pistons in a game in which, if they're going to do anything, if this is going to be more than just your typical high 20s win kind of season, we're ending up thinking about tanking by January. If they're going to do anything, they need to win this game. Especially after what happened on Monday night at the Garden. Because... 
the last time I did this podcast, I think it was after the Cleveland game. I went through this schedule, and I'm not going to do it again, but I went through the schedule, and we went through the games they're probably going to win or could win. There's no probably going to win. Could win in the games that they're probably going to lose. They go to Golden State on a back-to-back next week. They're not winning that game. Let's not be idiots. They have no shot to win that game. What was such a killer was the Pelican game. And the only reason I didn't do a podcast that night, I'm going to tell you my reasoning, right, for those of you who care. It was a Friday night. I was delayed. So if I did an instant reaction podcast, it wasn't going to be instant for anybody listening. It was going to be instant for me because I was probably about 45 minutes behind. Nothing was spoiled except at the very end when I read a text message from a Pelican fan that said, ouch, I thought I was hoping it meant it about himself and not me. So I wasn't even sure. But I knew I was on the next day on a Saturday, and I figured, ah, you know, it's a Saturday. I can get away with talking a little bit of Nets. I'll bitch about the Nets on a Saturday. But that loss to the Pelicans was just awful. I don't care if it's a game that going in you don't think you're going to win. When you have a game thrown away, just completely thrown away by ineptitude, by so many bad things, Jared Dudley committing the foul as early as he did, playing keep away, which they did fine for 12 seconds, but with eight seconds to go, can we cut out the keep away, just take the foul and hit your freaking free throws? to not being able to get the ball in bounds, to Ed Davis acting like a bouncer at a club, pushing what's-his-name away. I forget the guy's name. Or Solomon Hill, whatever it was. That was awful. And the Warrior game was typical. Like, all right, fine. They're not going to beat the Warriors. We get it. But the Nick debacle on Monday, to not even compete, to play as listless as they did, to have zero creativity on offense, to just sit there settling for threes all night against a Nick team, which I admit they are playing, forget the record, they are playing better than I thought they would. Now, I still think their win total will be their win total, but I give them credit for how hard they're playing. But to have a game like that, it, it really makes me question everything about this team and what they can do. And as I sit here right now, after a victory against the Pistons, with a record of 3-5, and five, with two more home games coming up before the West Coast trip, I still don't really know. My faith in the coach is still rattling. I'll tell you this. The more I see of D'Angelo Russell, the more I'm convinced, and maybe you're already convinced, he's not the answer long term. I mean, they are still missing that star player. I think Karis LeVert shows signs of it. Uh, the more you watch D'Angelo Russell, the more you say, I'd rather keep Dinwiddie over Russell. And maybe that is crazy. Maybe Russell does have the bigger upside than Dinwiddie. But I think Dinwiddie's better defensively. I think he's less careless with the basketball, though at times that hasn't been the case. And Dinwiddie's already given you more moments. He's already given you more of these clutch moments. Not that it needs to be a decision between the two. Both of these guys both, both may be gone next year, depending on how free agency looks. I feel good about more. And I, I mean, I don't think this changed by tonight or necessarily the last couple of games, but what Sean Marks needed to do, what needs to do, what the Knicks need to do is find gems. And he's found a few of them. I mean, Joe Harris is a gem. And, you know, I've told this story a few times before. I'm just being honest. The first time I saw Joe Harris, I stereotyped him. You know, I said, ah, just some white guy who shoots. That, that's all I thought he was. And shame on me. I should know better than that. You should never stereotype anybody because you end up looking stupid. 
You don't really know anybody or know somebody until you get to know them and you get to watch them. Joe Harris does so many things well. He drives to the basket, he defends, he rebounds, and obviously he's a hell of a shooter. I saved that for last, especially this year where he's been drilling the three at such a great rate. But they found Joe Harris, and they were able to re-sign him for such a reasonable amount of money. They found Spencer Dinwiddie. I love Dinwiddie. I understand that he may not fit on this team long-term. A lot of guys may not fit on this team long-term. We're finding that out. But the emotions I had watching this game, I I trickled between, am I going to join this tank camp that exists among Net fans? Am I believing that this team can compete and grow from what was a really bad stretch early in the season? That Pelican game, you can't tell me that that stuff doesn't linger a little bit. Just a little bit. That's a bad, bad loss that they had. And I know the Warriors are the Warriors, so it's tough to say that it affected them on that game. And I don't know what happened to Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure what the hell happened in that game. But they were very close to dropping to 2-6 and six if they lost this game. 2-6 and six with the Rockets, Sixers, and a West Coast trip coming up. This season could spiral, and it's still May. We'll see about the Rockets Friday night. They're off to a very bad start. Harden's been banged up. Melo sucks. At least from the little I've watched, he doesn't. I mean, he's just a shell of his former self. And the Sixers are going to be a tough customer on Sunday, so they can lose these next two games, and three and five can very easily turn into three and seven. But this was a <clears throat> deep breath kind of victory. It was a stressful kind of victory, and the truth is, we're just going to have to sit back and watch and continue to learn about this basketball team. But I feel good that they won. I still wonder about this head coach. And I still wonder where we're going from here. But I do appreciate you listening uh, to this edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast. Uh, a couple of days ago, we posted the New York Yankees off-season preview podcast with Midday Show producer Ernie Acosta and John Jastrzemski. If you haven't heard it, you should download it. Next week, we will be doing the New York Mets off-season preview. I wanted to wait for Brody to be announced and have his introduction as the general manager of this team. And I will have two Met fans joining me in doing that. I'll be bringing back Sal Licata, who you see on SNY, who's at WOR and I think is now with us. I think he's announced that. I think he tweeted a picture of his intercom badge. So he's in the company. So that's a good thing. So we'll do uh, a podcast with Sal. And I hope this guy does a good job because he's a really good Met fan. And you may have heard a few years ago, That on the air, I said to John Heyman in our weekly spot, I said, John, I have an idea. It's not my idea, but my friend has a trade idea. And John said, what's that? I said, my friend is suggesting the Mets trade Jonathan Neese for, oh, my God, Neil Walker. (laughs) Okay, it's it's been a few years. And Heyman's like, yeah, I don't think that'll happen. And a few weeks later, it happened. And Heyman continues to give me credit. It was not me. It was my friend, a diehard Mets fan who we also refer to as Adam Eaton, because he has a very controversial fantasy baseball named Adam Eaton something else. But he's a good Met fan, and he will join us. He'll be the third panelist. He's a big Met fan. He's got very strong opinions. He disagrees with me a lot. So hopefully he'll do a good job, and we'll do a Met roundtable discussion previewing the offseason. That will be posted on Wednesday. Wednesday, November something. Whatever that date is. Let me hold on. I'm going to figure it out, so I'll give you an answer. Wednesday, November 
7th. There you go. So thank you for listening to this edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast. Brooklyn. All right, see you later.